This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I think we have a chance to be really precise and strategic about how and why we use digital and more advanced tools in the U.S. nuclear triad right now. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is teaming up with the CSIS Project on Nuclear Issues, better known as PONY, to feature a series of conversations between established and next-gen scholars in the nuclear arena. It's called PONY Pathbreakers. I spoke with Aaron Dumbacher, a senior program officer for the Scientific and Technical Affairs Program at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, and Suzanne Spaulding, senior advisor for Homeland Security and director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project at CSIS. We discussed cyber deterrence and nuclear security and their experiences in the field. Suzanne, Aaron, thanks so much for being here today. I want to talk about cyber deterrence and its connection to nuclear issues. And we'll start by saying that, you know, cyber is not new, but it is becoming an emerging threat that requires more thought and strategy and preparation against possible threats, particularly in the nuclear space. What are some of the areas of focus that our audience should be aware of for cyber deterrence versus nuclear deterrence? Suzanne, why don't we start with you? Great question. Great to be here. And Erin, looking forward to this conversation with you today. I think there are a couple key differences when people think about nuclear deterrence versus cyber deterrence. We've got a lot more history in nuclear deterrence. And in fact, when I served on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which just wrapped up its work and filed its report, our key focus was on deterrence. And as we started, I think people had traditional concepts of deterrence from the nuclear deterrence experience in their heads. And it took us a while for many of the commissioners to realize how different, really, in many respects, cyber deterrence is. So a couple key differences. Nuclear really is largely binary. You either deter the use by your adversary or you don't. And a single use, obviously, of a nuclear weapon is huge. In cyber, clearly malicious cyber activity by nation states and their proxies is happening every day, all day. Deterrence is not about stopping them from using cyber. It's about reducing its use and reducing its impact, particularly against our essential assets, by raising the cost to the adversary and denying the benefits. And you're doing this in many respects at the margin. You are trying to deter significant cyber incidents. But it's really very different in that way. It's not an on-off. Nuclear also, we've had, as I said, decades to work out doctrine, and we've carefully defined the escalatory ladder, right? The steps that might lead to escalation. If we do this, you know, we can anticipate that the adversary is likely to do Y, and if we do the next step, they'll do this, and here's confidence-building measures and ways in which we can move up or down that ladder. Herman Kahn has, you know, created 44 rungs that he's defined in that escalatory ladder. Cyber has none of that really worked out. We can't just apply that traditional escalatory ladder. 
And we don't really know what those rungs look like. We simply don't have that kind of experience. And my colleague, Rebecca Hirschman, who runs the PONY program, the Project on Nuclear Initiatives, has a terrific piece out just now in the Texas National Security Review called Wormhole Escalation in the New Nuclear Age. And she's talking about the fact that we need a new metaphor, that the traditional concept of the escalatory ladder may not apply here, where where we don't have predictable escalatory pathways, and that crisis escalation may instead follow a wormhole dynamic, borrowing a term from physics, if you will. She says, holes may suddenly open in the fabric of deterrence through which competing states could inadvertently enter and suddenly traverse between subconventional and strategic levels of conflict in an accelerated and decidedly nonlinear ways. So this makes employing a strategy of cyber deterrence incredibly difficult because it is to a degree unpredictable, correct? Yes, I think that's right. And a lot of that is because we don't have a lot of experience and we don't have doctrine. We haven't really been able to define, you know, traditionally in the military context, we think of red lines. Well, we haven't really defined red lines very well in cyberspace, for example. We also don't have a lot of experience using these cyber tools, either offensively or defensively, frankly, and particularly offensively. And we don't fully understand, I think, and when I say we, I mean globally, our adversaries included, what effects might be produced you look at NotPetya, and the consensus, I think, is that that ransomware attack that went global and is attributed to Russia was not necessarily designed to go global. And so I think that is one illustration of the challenges that we face. What are some of the major cyber threats to nuclear security? So there are a number of cyber threats to nuclear security. And if you start by thinking about how we talk about cyber threats generally, just remove it for a minute from the nuclear context, I think that one of the most useful ways to think about it is to think about the impact of a cyber incident. We worry about its impact on the confidentiality of information and data, on the ability to access data, and on the integrity of that data. Right. And so if you apply that now, move into the nuclear space, you can see the ways in which an adversary's ability to impact confidentiality, access or integrity of data could have impacts. If you think in the traditional cyber context, traditional malicious cyber activity, the potential impact on your capability, simply your ability to use the weapons that you have including your networked access controls, right? So you've got to think about both the the cyber aspects of the weapons themselves, but also think about the cyber or networked aspects of your security around those weapons, your physical security even around those weapons, right? You've got to think about uh, the impact on your leadership, right? Command, control, and communications in the nuclear arena is incredibly important communications and the flow of data within that C3, uh, NC3 context. And then the convergence with conventional, cyber attacks that can undermine our non-nuclear net-centric capabilities may actually lower the threshold, right, for the use of nuclear. Think about 
the traditional cyber threat, and then add to it the potential for disinformation. And you start to see how it can raise questions about the reliability of yours or your adversary's nuclear capability, right? If you aren't sure whether you have the capability you think you have because you don't know for sure whether your adversary may have done something to diminish, to delete, to remove that capability. It could raise questions about the reliability of your detection and warning capabilities. And if you add to that disinformation, you may not even have to do any of those things, but simply claim that you did. And all of the items that you just outlined here make it incredibly difficult to impose a cost for an adversary in terms of setting up a type of deterrence. Am I hearing that part of what you're saying correctly? One of the things we're trying to do is impose a cost to the adversary, right? The cost, by raising the cost of trying to hack in to our nuclear system, whether it's the weapons themselves, the command control and communications, the storage facilities, et cetera, right, to undermine our capability. But we are also trying to deny them the benefits so that as they do the cost-benefit analysis, they conclude that they're better off doing something else, right, that doesn't impact that strategic deterrence that we currently have in place that comes from an assured response capability. Aaron, let me bring you in here to ask you how the major cyber threats to nuclear security are being dealt with, or are they being addressed? Thank you. Yeah, I mean... Consistent with what Suzanne just outlined, you know, we think about cyber threats to nuclear security in sort of two ways, one being the cybersecurity for civilian nuclear facilities. That's something that me and my colleagues work on. Of course, on the threat side to nuclear weapons programs, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, And these nuclear weapons programs, I should say, in any cases around the world, are undergoing modernization initiatives that we have to be even more mindful of these cyber threats within. So for as long as we have nuclear weapons, we need to make sure that they're safe, secure, and reliable. That's a given. For some time, you know, I think there was a mentality that since some critical elements of at least the U.S. nuclear triad were analog, that they were resistant to cyber attack. Recent history has proven this not to be true. The idea that you can air gap these systems, it's just outdated. All digital systems are vulnerable to cyber attacks, full stop. And especially as I think about modernization and as we work towards this, you know, adding automation or even in some instances, machine learning tools can raise the risks of cybersecurity and even the potential benefits. You know, those tools sometimes might be very useful, can raise all of these issues even more. In particular, I mentioned I'm interested in U.S. nuclear modernization and thinking about it really as a chance to consider this balance between the real functional upgrades to be had with new technologies and the risks, cybersecurity being one of those. So we're spending a lot more time, all of us in our homes these days, right? So just like if you once had a chance to build or renovate a house, what's the first thing you'd want to do? You'd want to think about how you'd use it before building actually starts. Otherwise, you might end up with, say, walls in places where they might not make sense for the way your family lives. Thinking about cybersecurity, of course, you may need to patch holes over time in those walls, but maybe if you would use different materials or by placing the foundation in a different spot altogether, you'd reduce some of your risk. 
I think we have a chance to be really precise and strategic about how and why we use digital and more advanced tools in the U.S. nuclear triad right now. I hope we'll take this chance, you know, especially as the temptation to add in some of these advanced tools. I mentioned automation and machine learning um, into our nuclear decision making systems are at hand. I would just add, you know, these issues are critical to how nuclear deterrence policy really ages into the 21st century. So technical cybersecurity measures are critically important. I just don't think that we can assume that they are enough to give us the confidence we need to have in the security and the reliability of nuclear weapon systems, thereby in deterrence. What do we need in addition to the technical aspect? You know, I think we need to be thoughtful of the risks of nuclear use as a result of miscalculation, accident, unauthorized use. You know, cyber means could be used to accelerate any of those ongoing liabilities. There's always been the potential for high consequence events, some sort of accidental act that could trigger the use of a nuclear weapon if it wasn't intended to be used. I think that risk is growing as we and other nuclear weapon states are modernizing our arsenals. It really comes down to guarding against the unintended consequences of using new technologies with our longstanding nuclear triad and all of the policy and the operations that, as Suzanne eloquently said, had sort of developed over decades. She mentioned command and control functions. Those are so critical to connect leaders to the weapons, the information that goes to those leaders as they're making these decisions. All of these together, all of these new risks, I think really have to be considered in a strategic framework as well as in a really operational sense as we're thinking about building new nuclear weapons. Are there any things that concern you specifically in terms of the cyber threat to the U.S. nuclear arsenal? I know some of this may be confidential information, and I wouldn't want you to divulge anything, but are there specific cyber threats that really keep you up at night as it concerns the arsenal, the nuclear arsenal? Yeah, so I'll borrow here from a very senior study group that my colleagues convened a few years ago. They looked at a few different scenarios. So they worry about spoofing of early warning systems, for example, that might show incoming nuclear attacks during a crisis that could lead to some sort of response based on falsified information. We can think about the communication system. So just some sort of disruption in communication amongst officials and operators with one another. That could be, you know, a lack of communication for fear that there's been some sort of denial of service attack to some tool there. Or it could just be that there is something much more malicious going on, right? There could just be something that is out of the norm <laughs> that could lead folks to be concerned. There's a supply chain vulnerability. There are a number of folks around the Department of Defense and Department of Energy complexes on the nuclear side thinking about supply chain vulnerability, something that could lead to a loss of confidence in the nuclear arsenal. And then, of course, there are the security systems, the systems that would guard against some sort of physical attack or theft of a nuclear weapon. Or I should also say, again, on the civilian side, some sort of cyber attack that could infiltrate or give rise to concern about theft of nuclear materials at some sort of civilian facility 
not just in the U.S. again, but anywhere around the world where there's nuclear energy or, or research being done. And you've raised the issue of civilian nuclear facilities. Are the threats essentially the same as to the arsenal? That seems to be what I hear you saying. They're a bit different, but like all critical infrastructure, I mean, nuclear facilities that are used for research or power generation, they're not immune to cyber attacks, of course. Cyber security at nuclear facilities is really about making sure that cyber attacks don't facilitate the theft of nuclear materials. So someone could somehow get hold of uranium or plutonium or be a part of some sort of act of sabotage, which could cause catastrophic public health or economic consequences, and maybe even worse, could undermine global confidence in civilian nuclear power as a safe and reliable energy source, especially as we think about climate change and related issues. So there you're really thinking about access to control systems at facilities, whether or not they could be compromised, allowing unauthorized entry, accounting systems even. So some of the business systems that could be manipulated that would track, for example, theft of materials that could lead it to go unnoticed. And then, of course, you're also concerned there about reactor cooling systems, some sort of deliberate disablement that could, frankly, result in something as awful as a Fukushima-like disaster. So we're recording this in you know, mid-July. In about 10 days' time, my colleagues at the Nuclear Threat Initiative will release the newest NTI Nuclear Security Index, which ranks countries around the world on their nuclear security So stay tuned for some of the latest findings and rankings also on the cybersecurity piece of nuclear security writ large. But the last time we checked, so a few years ago in 2018, that index showed that one third of countries around the world that did have weapons usable nuclear materials or facilities, they lacked all basic cybersecurity regulations. So there's a lot of work to be done. Okay, that last statement you just made is really scary. You know, it's not the most advanced stuff that we're looking for here. You know, we want to make sure that every country that has a nuclear facility has some of the basics in place. We're looking for incorporating cyber threats into threat assessments, looking to make sure that nuclear facility licensees have some sort of cyber incident response plan. They know who to call. So we're really talking about the basics here. This isn't just a challenge for the governments and the regulators, of course. You know, there are operators all around the world struggling to kind of put these practices in place. They've got to recognize, you know, it's a continuous improvement. Um, There's a lot to be done. But that mutual assistant mechanisms, maybe, you know, cross-country, regional groups looking towards computer emergency response teams. There's a lot lot of ideas here um, that could help increase the quality and the quantity of, you know, the expertise around the world. So many things to follow up on here. One, you mentioned the threat of sabotage. How big a threat is that? And then I want to pair that with a question about other countries and how they're dealing with all of this if some of them don't have the basics that you mentioned. How big a concern should this be for the United States in terms of dealing with its allies and its adversaries? Yeah, so there have been some incidents that lead us to have this concern. Again, I would say that we'll have latest sort of analysis of the scope of the sabotage threat coming soon, bringing us into 2020 with that data. But you asked a a good question about 
global cooperation. There's so much to be done to set up an effective nuclear security system around the world. So much good work has been done, but there are some alarming sort of undercurrents that, in my view, threaten the progress that's been made here. So nuclear security overall cybersecurity as part of that, but nuclear security overall needs a renewed global focus now that we're four plus years out from the nuclear security summit process. Leaders need to really recommit to take tangible and really measurable steps to make sure that there's not some sort of terrorist attack that could really cause traumatic consequences. I'll just mention one initiative that we're leading at NTI to try to strengthen the cybersecurity of facilities We're trying to target the fact that there are just so few really skilled and trained cyber nuclear experts working at these facilities around the world. We host a cyber nuclear forum. It tries to bring together some of the few really experienced cybersecurity leaders at nuclear facilities, just a forum to help them share best practices, help them mutually problem solve. Of course, now, given the pandemic, of course, we're working to find a way to build this much needed capacity remotely. It's easier said than done. But there is a lot of work to be done here on the nuclear security side globally. And then, you know, if you think about global cooperation among nuclear powers on the nuclear weapons side, there's also a lot to be done to establish norms that really restrict the use of cyber weapons against nuclear weapons systems. I said it before, I think we really need to be guarding against unintended consequences here. While we have had some standards, if you will, um, that have developed over the decades that we've had nuclear weapons with us, I think cyber threats and others start to question. And, you know, you mentioned Rebecca Hurstman's work. Um, there's, there's some good thinking going into the ways that our nuclear weapons policies around the world need to adapt to where we find ourselves today. I'd really like to see the U.S. and NATO shape international rules of the road here. I think we need a global approach, though. International dialogue that helps build awareness of this, these types of issues and their consequences Developing norms, rules of the road, for instance, that could limit the use of cyber attacks against nuclear weapon systems explicitly. These could be built on longstanding international treaties, as well as some of the norms efforts from various multilateral efforts. Thinking here of the United Nations groups of governmental experts that have already agreed that cyber attacks against critical infrastructure should be off limits. So there's lots more to do. And Suzanne, let me bring you back in here in this part of the conversation with a question about how governments and other organizations should be preparing to deal with disinformation efforts that could lead to some of the things that Aaron has outlined here. Yeah. In addition to Aaron's terrific description of the potential harms from disinformation, of course, you've got the potential for disinformation targeting the public to complicate the decisions by the government and by the command authority, right? To undermine public support for the steps that government officials may think need to be taken, even just introducing delay, for example. And so there is a broad range of concerns stemming from the use of information operations by our adversaries. And we know that they are very aware of the potential impact, and it's very much integrated into their military doctrine. 
the use of information operations. So we do need to make sure that we've anticipated that, that we assume those are going to be happening, that in addition to everything else that may be going on during a crisis, that we are going to be under an information operation attack, if you will. Focus on ways to quickly assess fact from fiction for operational purposes, right? Just those who are involved in addressing the facts on the ground, how you can correct the record with the public. We need to assess our current confidence building measures for their applicability to these particular information operation disinformation scenarios. Intelligence entities need to be focused on understanding who would be motivated to engage in disinformation, right? Not just nation states, but across the board who might be tempted to engage in disinformation, information operations, how to detect them and how to counter it. So I think it is a very serious concern. Bev, I would also like to address some of the recommendations of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission with respect to the broader cybersecurity threats to nuclear, in addition to all of the terrific recommendations that Aaron suggested on the national and international front, all of which I think are really smart. The commission did have a series of recommendations under the pillar of preserving and employing the military instrument of power, which the commission believed was a really important part of our cybersecurity strategy. If we're going to have an effective deterrent against our adversaries and non-state actors, We do, particularly state actors, need to make sure that we have all of the tools in our arsenal. And that includes looking at the cybersecurity of our nuclear system. And the key recommendation is to conduct a cybersecurity vulnerability assessment of all segments of the NC3, the National Command Control and Communications, and the National Leadership Command and Control Systems. And to continually assess weapon system cyber vulnerabilities and a series of specific recommendations that follow. The key there is an emphasis on taking a risk management approach that doesn't just look at the technical aspects of this, but looks at improving overall resilience of our system, identifying secondary and tertiary dependencies uh, with a focus on rapid remediation of the vulnerabilities that are identified. And we specifically call out that attention needs to be given to influence operations that could distort decision-making, even if they aren't accompanied by traditional malicious cyber activity. So I think there are things that the government needs to be doing right now. We're optimistic that our recommendations in this area may be included in the National Defense Authorization Act that is currently moving through Congress. And Beverly, if I could just add, I think that's so important, Suzanne. I'm so glad you mentioned those recommendations. I was so pleased to see those in the Solarium Commission report, thinking not just about nuclear command and control systems and the cybersecurity of those, but also about the delivery systems. It's so critical. And very critical. And thank you, Suzanne, for raising those recommendations. They're very, very important, and I hope they are followed. I want to shift the conversation just a bit and talk about your experiences in this field. This podcast is part of a series of getting next-gen leaders and experienced leaders together in conversation. So I want to ask a question about, are there generational differences in terms of 
how we look at solutions to these types of critical questions about cyber deterrence and nuclear security. Um, Erin, I'll start with you. Certainly. I cannot speak for all of my generation or perhaps even for those younger than me, many of whom are doing really amazing work in awareness building and engagement for young people in the nuclear security field. I should also say I can't speak on behalf of my organization here. You know, these are my personal opinions. But I do think there are definite generational differences when it comes to nuclear security issues. There's still a set of guardians of sort of the doctrine that's evolved over time, I'll call them. Um, some might call them, you know, the nuclear priesthood or those schooled by the original, I'll say mostly male, priesthood of nuclear policy experts. This group tends to be, by and large, certainly not everyone, but tends to be dismissive of new thinking and pretty skeptical of the need to, in particular, engage the public in nuclear policy issues. That way of developing policies, even programs replete with, you know, really highly classified information, it can just seem antiquated. 21st century policy development really has to be much more democratic, I think. Some have talked of a bit of an engagement gap. So the myth that younger people aren't interested in nuclear policy issues. And it's definitely true that many of us don't have the same palpable feelings of risks of nuclear war as those that might have had duck and cover drills um, in school. I had drills for natural disasters, <laughs> which might be helpful as climate change progresses. Yo those younger than me had active shooter drills in school, maybe. I studied the Cold War. Many of my peers did not. Terrorism was really the top concern for many. The threat of nuclear extinction kind of seemed to lapse a little bit if you came of age in the 1990s. Issues like economic and racial inequality and climate change, these are the issues that we feel and we experience. So when it comes to cyber and nuclear security, we definitely have a different frame of mind. It might be the case that those currently sort of dominating the nuclear policy space, maybe just out of sheer numbers rather than any malintent. You know, there's a lot more <laughs> of them in some of these senior roles. They aren't necessarily up to date on new technologies, digital automation, as maybe they should be. Maybe they can't grasp, you know, the risks and the opportunities that come with technology change. So I think we have a real opportunity to revise and rethink some of the assumptions that have been in place for decades and that were maybe based on thinking from the 1950s and, and the 1960s. It's going to take a lot of creativity and understanding to deal with some of these really hard challenges that we have before us. We need the space to question some of those fundamental assumptions that were true of the last century. And we know it can be a little uncomfortable for those who have been well-schooled in new nuclear weapons policy for decades. Some questions that we might need to raise are, do we still need missiles on prompt launch? Is that still safe today in an era full of cybersecurity vulnerabilities? How can we trust the provenance and you know the context of information that goes to the president as he or she makes a decision as serious as one about nuclear war? You know, the information environment is just so different. Hiding is really hard globally. I think this different frame of mind and different context that younger generations in this space have is really an opportunity. We have a deep bench. There are impressive people really all around me. And it saddens me. You know, I'm a former management consultant. It makes the heart of, <laughs> it makes my heart unhappy to see talents and passion, you know, not fully utilized. 
So we need the best people really in public service. We need creativity. We need to be able to find them, of course, pipeline issues. We need to make sure that they'll stay and we need to make sure that we can, you know, use everyone's talents. Those of us who are younger in this space, you know, we might find the idea that some of these issues are just getting more and more complex, a little bit frustrating, a little bit disheartening, but we're here, you know, we're working on it. Um, We're ready. We're ready to lead. And one thing that I would follow up on and bring in Suzanne into this part of the conversation, technology has completely changed the game in terms of how mis- and disinformation campaigns operate. And the people in the next gen are the ones who are perhaps more familiar with this technology and its implications in the nuclear space. Yeah, Bev, you are so right. You know, as I'm listening to Aaron, I am both really excited about this generation of amazing women, particularly who have chosen to go into this field and, you know, recognizing how much we need to help them because you are, Aaron and your colleagues, challenging, as you said, decades old religion, if you will, and it needs to be challenged and it needs your fresh thinking, but you are already and you will continue to meet with great resistance as long as sort of the old guard is still in place there. And uh, so it's a formidable task and I'm very excited and I know that you and your colleagues are really up for it, but, uh, but those of us who might be in a position to help need to step up and do that. I think you're right, Bev, about, you know, part of that new generation is thinking about technology and disinformation is certainly one. I was at a an international conference not too long ago, several months ago, before the pandemic, obviously. And and I was talking to the group about disinformation and its application in the nuclear deterrence area. And after my remarks, one of the gentlemen around the table said, ah, there's nothing new here. You know, there's always been propaganda around the nuclear program. And we had to sort of explain how different the tools and the technology, the reach, the scale, the scope, the speed of what we're seeing today is from what they're used to. I think the other issue that Aaron touched on that is really an important generational difference is the understanding of how things are connected, that you cannot view things in stovepipes. The biggest problem that I saw when I was the legal advisor at CIA for the Nonproliferation Center, folks who worried about WMD, was how the folks, particularly around nuclear, had turned that into a strictly technical, functional examination. They were all just looking about the technology, unconnected to efforts to understand the geopolitical environment or leadership analysis. And I think that was made painfully evident with the Iraq WMD intelligence failures. I worry actually about the same thing happening in cyber, that our cyber pros in government are all techies and they look at the cyber issue so much in a technology bubble. Both of these areas we need to link much more closely to those who are working to understand what drives each of our adversaries, both nation states and non-state actors. Each one is a little bit different and we really need tailored approaches to each of them. What questions would you guys like to ask each other? So Erin hinted at the question that I would love to ask her, but I really would you know, just love to see her have this opportunity to talk directly 
to some of the most senior people in government engaged in nuclear policy and strategy. I feel like we often miss really important insights from our rising leaders. What you see in government is that the biggest, most important decisions are made by those who are farthest away from the facts on the ground and operational details. So I would love to ask Aaron, you know, if you had a chance to speak directly to senior leadership in the executive branch or maybe in Congress, who would you want to talk to and what would you say? Uh, it's such a good question and such a hard one. I think I would ask questions rather than come with answers. But I have two for you. So the first is, you know, just given where we are in this moment, probably along with many Americans right now, I have major questions to ask about the national response to the coronavirus. <laughs> so if I had a chance to talk with someone in the White House, I'd probably bring along some of my colleagues like Beth Cameron and team who are focused on bio issues. And I just you know, put them in front and say, please listen to what they have to say. I'd implore them to sort of really draw on their expertise. But setting that to the side, one question I would love to ask someone in someone close to the president, probably senior advisor, maybe could be the defense secretary, could be chairman of the Joint Chiefs, someone who might be close to the president at a critical time, should there be a nuclear alert. So given our policy that the president has sole authority to launch nuclear weapons, I would want to know what would make you decide it were an unlawful order or that the president wasn't of sound mind to order a nuclear attack? I'd want to know what would make you pause or defy an order to launch a nuclear weapon. Others have written about this. Secretary Perry, Tom Kalina have a new book that describes this issue in much more depth than I can. But I think the question is very real for me. And I think for millions of Americans, even if we try to, you know, not let it keep us up at night. And I hope it's a hypothetical question. Um, <laughs> I'd ask probably in part to just encourage them to think about this enormous burden, you know, everyone serving in those senior roles and those in the military who are a part of this mission, the nuclear mission, carry a really heavy, unfathomable burden. And I don't think we should forget that, you know, even as we, or at least me, you know, sort of wonkily continue our work in this space. Also, you offered the chance to, to ask someone a question or, or speak to someone on the legislative branch, too. And I think I would ask Nancy Pelosi the same question I would love to ask you, Suzanne. <laughs> if I may, I'd love to you know, just assuming that your experiences in the national security space are similar to others, is there, I, I'm even hesitant to say these words out loud, but is there an insidious sort of form of sexism that you experienced during your career that you're glad those of us newer to the field don't have to face? I'd love to hear because I think it's really helpful to realize, you know, how far we've come, even though we all know we have further to go. Yeah, it's a great question, Erin. And your answer to my question was terrific. I hope people are listening and will have those conversations that you're encouraging them to have. You know, it's interesting. I think the insidious forms of sexism are still there. I think what's really changed is the acceptability of the more open kinds of sexism, right? Does that make sense? And so, you know, I guess the clearest example that I had where I saw this was when I was at CIA, when the Nonproliferation Center was first established. And the decision was made to assign a lawyer to them, which was relatively new then. It's pretty standard form now, but it was a new idea to detail a lawyer to an operational or analytic group. And I 
put in to be that lawyer. I had been in 1981 a charter member of the Lawyers Alliance for Nuclear Arms Control and had a real interest in these issues. And the general counsel at the time was Elizabeth Rinskoff. She's now Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker. She's Elizabeth Rinskoff. And she told me that when she floated the idea that I might be chosen to be the lawyer for NPC, the guys all said she can't do that because I was working part-time in those days, three or four days a week. And the guys all said, she can't do that job. And Elizabeth stood up and said, I think she can. And she gave me that position and it went beautifully. I received several awards and commendations from NPC. They were very happy with their part-time lawyer, but it does take senior people standing up for women and minorities, even when they don't fit the traditional mold, right? But I think that kind of blatant, she can't do it, that job, I hope, is less common today, less acceptable. Suzanne and Aaron, this has been a fabulous conversation, and it could continue for several more minutes, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.